Hi, my name is Michael Sano. I'm Jewish and I love Israel. So if you love Israel, if you love being Jewish, or if you have an unwavering connection to the land of Israel, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? My name is Michael Sano, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this episode of the 12 Cities in Israel podcast, the only positive podcast about the people, the culture, the food, and the history of the state of Israel. Hey, listen, if this is your first time watching us, don't forget to hit the like button, the subscribe button, and the notification bell. And if you'd like to take us with you, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Google Podcasts, sorry, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Um, I'm always screwing that up. It's going to come to me, I swear. Now, uh, this episode is brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards, a perfect, perfect educational resource for learning Hebrew or for brushing up on it. Um, they're available on Amazon Kindle. Uh, and you can, if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can get them for free. Otherwise, they are $9.99 a pack. And we have three, uh, two of them out now, another one coming out soon. And I'll tell you all about it at the end of the episode. Okay, welcome back. Hey, um, we are doing the... 12 cities in Israel series. So, um, as if you've been watching, you'll notice we've, uh, we've covered a couple of different cities. Um, but before we get to that, I have to give a major shout out to, um, a brand new patron that we have on Patreon. He's my second one. My first one is Peter Madeira. You're a rock star. Always give him a coffee. What's up? And now we have J hats and J hats. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to put that. Uh, you'll be able to read it on the screen. Um, J hats. You are a rock star. Hold on. I dropped my notes. Give me one second. All right. Sorry. We are back in play. Um, all right. Let me take a sip of coffee at Peter Madeira, this is for you, but J-Hats, it's also for you. Give me one moment. All right, so as I said, we're talking about the 12 cities in Israel. That's what uh, we've been covering for the past uh, number of episodes. We've covered Beersheba, um, Akko, Acre. Um, where else? We've covered Ashkelon, and most recently, Herzliya. And now we are at Elat. Sunny, sunny a lot, uh, the southernmost city in Israel. Um, but what do we do? First, we always cover the history. So let's get to it. So a lot, the southernmost city in Israel, it's located uh, on the northern shore of the Red Sea, and it's often called Israel's Southern Gateway because it uh, allows for ship travel between the Far East and the, in the Indian Ocean and other places, other points to the East. Um, and it is a port city and tourist resort nestled between bordering Jordan and Egypt. Um, 
and with its strategic location on the edge of both Africa and Asia, it's a land bridge between both, um, it has been occupied by the ancient Egyptians, the Midianites, the Romans, the Nabataeans, the Byzantines, the Mamluks, the Crusaders, the Turks, and the British. Um, it's even mentioned in the Torah. What? Um, as a stopover on the Israelites' journey through the desert and as their strategic location for both King David and King Solomon um, and his successors and their successors. So it goes all the way back. Now, if you go to a lot, so you go to Jerusalem and Jerusalem is, you're touching history. You can see it all around you. Um, in a lot, that's not necessarily the case because it is a city in the desert. And you have these very, on the drive down, you have all these, this wide open desert, these expansive mountains that go on. Um, and you wouldn't think that it is uh, conducive, conducive? I think that's the word. Good for you wouldn't think <laughs> you wouldn't think it's good for um, habitation, but it go. Oh, it's been inhabited all the way back to prehistoric times. Now, at first glance, the desert region of a lot appears unsuited for human settlement. See, I wrote it so much better. Um, but a large number of surveys and excavations carried out near the city since the 1980s have provided evidence of agricultural settlement encampments and cult sites, which existed there over the past several thousands of years. Um, these sites are examples of periods when the region flourished and of periods when the desert, in quotes, uh, returned and human activity became minimal. Now, on the western edge of what is now a lot, um, archaeological excavations have uncovered extensive prehistoric tombs, and these tombs date all the way back to the 7th millennium BCE. <laughs> Into the sands of time. Now, to the northwest of Alat is a mountainous region called the Uvda Valley, and this valley is home to a 7,000-year-old Uvda Leopard Temple, and I'm going to cover it in a minute. Um, and it's covered with rich alluvial soil from the surrounding mountains, so it was a good place for settlement. Um, now, in Neolithic times, and this is from the eighth to the fourth millennia BCE, um, there were significantly there was significantly much more rainfall in the region um, than there is now today. Uh, this created a savanna environment. What? of rolling grasslands and allowed human hunter gatherers to live on that and to eventually progress into, um, into what is a cultivation, the cultivation of crops and all of that. But in the beginning they ate wild grains and they ate deer. Um, what is it? Deer, gazelle, wild ass and birds. Um, donkeys you know what i mean so that's it's fascinating that you can go there and you can go to this area and you can physically be in the place where the progression from hunter gatherers to um cultivators and domesticating animals all happened it's just it's wow now in the eastern part of the valley 
This is the Uvda Valley. Um, lies the Nahal Ashrun site, and this site, uh, at this point, it's been almost completely excavated, and it dates, dates back to the 8th to 7th millennia BCE. It consists of several dozen rounded stone dwellings, two to four meters in diameter, and they're all built close together. The inhabitants of this Neolithic village were hunters, as evidenced by hundreds of flint arrowheads and the bones of undomesticated animals that have been found in the dwellings. So they are able to look at the evidence by what they've excavated, what they've dug up, and they can go, oh, arrowheads, bones, people ate meat. Um, another site found in the Uvda Valley, it's an open air sanctuary, and it consists of an approximately 40 by 40 foot this pretty big square courtyard surrounded by a low stone wall. Amazingly, the four corners of this structure correspond to the four points found on the compass. So to put that into perspective, these people had an astronomical concept, an ability to wrap their heads around uh, astronomical um, events that were occurring around them you may not know it but the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun is an astronomical event and they can trace the stars figure out where north is east and west and all of that and it's just phenomenal that all the way back to the neolithic i'm pretty sure yeah the neolithic era people had this understanding and you can see this in the U of the valley um now all, since this structure uh, corresponded to the um, the points on the compass, there were also three conical basins, and they contained ashes found in the courtyard. And in the center of this stood approximately uh, stood sixteen, approximately seven to eleven inch tall upright stones. Carbon fourteen dating uh, dates the site to the sixth millennia BCE. So you've got to take all of this into into uh into in, into basically what you have to do is yeah <laughs> sorry you have to take all of this into account together so you look at these uh the four corners of the uh of the square were matched to the compass then you have these um little mini monoliths that are standing up and you have this ash basin this is some type of cultic site they were doing some type of worship here um sorry little brain stumble right there um now a short diff distance away from this site is another site where a group of 16 life-size representations of animals this is i was talking about this before made of small rectangular pieces of limestone were found embedded into the ground so Basically, in the ground, they made a a mosaic-ish representation of animals uh, in the earth. Now, 15 of them face east and represent leopards with square heads, huge eyes, four legs, and an upward curving tail. This is the leopard, the Uvda leopard temple. Um, one horned animal faces west with slightly twisted horns that suggest that it's an antelope. So again, you're finding another cultic site, another site where the communication between us down here and whatever's up there that uh, <laughs> decides our fate, we're trying to influence that by 
supplication, by sacrifice. Um, it is theorized that this could possibly have been a cult site where sacrifices were made to their gods for protections for their shepherds and their flocks against predators, which were most likely leopards um, thousands of years ago. So this is fascinating. We are seeing the early definitions of religious practice on the earth at this site. We're seeing the earliest practices of hunter gathering the, of the transition from hunter gathering to domestication and farming at this site. This is the cradle of one of the cradles of human civilization. It's fascinating. Um, now, during the Chalcolithic period of the fourth millennium BCE, an agricultural evolution took place in this region. Um, hunting, hunting and gathering of grain uh, were replaced by cultivation of barley and wheat and by herds of domesticated goats and sheep. Small settlements with planned stone dwellings and stone-lined grain silos dug into the ground have been uncovered by archaeologists throughout the valley. This harvesting of grain was done with sickles of bone or wood, which were toothed, which means they were the the sharp part was put inside, um, and they with flint blades. And this grain was ground on grindstones, many of which were found inside their dwellings. So, think about that. They were developing the tools in order to make work easier during this transition. So we're seeing the evolutions of of industry not industry like we see industry now but they were developing an agricultural industry in this area to benefit themselves and it's it's just it's phenomenal it's fascinating um so that's prehistoric a lot i'm gonna take another sip hold on mm. so and when i say a lot one of the things we need to understand and we're gonna come up i'm gonna actually discuss it in this next section biblical a lot we're talking about a region all right now the location of biblical a lot has been identified as that of present-day Aqaba in Jordan which has the only water source in the region Aqaba is located across the Gulf from present-day a lot so <clears throat> they're saying in the research that a lot was a place a human settlement but I'm going to contest that a little bit, maybe get in a little bit of trouble because the derivation of Alat's name is unclear. It may have come from the Hebrew word Ayil, which means ram. And interestingly, during the time of Abraham, the area was home to grazing herds of rams. Now, in the Bible, the Israelites passed by the way of the plain of Elath and encamped at Etzion Gaber. This is in Numbers 33, 35 and Deuteronomy 2, 8 through 9. Now, I don't know. I think the plains of Alath are not the plains of the city of Alath, but actually the region there. Um, and that's just my take on it. So Alath is believed to be the location where King David was said to have established his southernmost line of defenses and his son King Solomon continued to develop the region and built a fleet of ships at Etzion Geber near Alath on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Now, 
Etzion Geber, I'm I'm more inclined to say is an actual settlement, whereas a lot is a region. But I could be wrong, and I'm okay with that. Um, the fleet was used. This fleet uh, was used to bring back gold and spices from the land of Ophir. And this is in uh, 1 Kings 9.26, where this is told to us. It might also be noted that Solomon's nearby copper workings and mining operations find at the Timna Valley are among the oldest on earth. So again, we're touching on history um, being made, being created, uh, civilization being made, being created in this area that if you go there now is just desert it looks uninhabitable um but it wasn't to these ancient people now the queen of shiva is supposed to have passed through a lot on the way to visit the king of jerusalem and king jehoshaphat of judah also built a navy um in a lot but this fleet was destroyed in a storm and it's important to note that the historical ongoing conflict between Solomon and his successors with the kingdom of Edom, Edomites, over control of a lot was primarily for economic reasons. This was due to a lot being a vital point to the trade route between the east and the ports in the Mediterranean. As I said, it's this land bridge in between um, Asia and Africa, and it's a short route on land. It's the shortest route on land to the Mediterranean. Um, now, during the reign of King Ahaz, a lot fell to the king of Syria. From that point on, the city changed hands and names many times. And we're going to go over that because then we move into the Roman and the Byzantine periods. And during the Roman and Byzantine periods, a lot, which they had called Aela, was a fort protecting the southern border of the empire, initially against incursions by nomadic tribes of Nabataeans, and then from incursions by Arabs and Bedouin tribes. So I mentioned in the, what was it, in the Beersheba history episode, that there was a fort there uh, against um, these different groups. And that apparently line of defenses went all the way down to the Red Sea. Um... And the fortress, the Roman fortress of Yodvata, is located in the Arava Valley, which is um, the space, and I'm going to mention it again, between the Dead Sea and the Red Sea, This that, that expanse there. Um, and this fort is approximately 25 miles north of Alat, and it was built during the reign of the Roman Emperor Diocletian, who reigned from 284 um, to 305 CE. Now, this was part of a line of border fortresses in the Negev and was manned by cavalry and camel riders um, to protect the trade route against marauding Arab nomads. And I'm assuming since it was part of a Roman fortress line that there were also Roman roads there. Now, this fortress was a typical Roman military building comprised of a square of approximately 130 by 130 feet. So this thing's ginormous. Surrounded by a wall with four protecting towers at each corner. And the tower part of the wall was built of stone, while the upper part was made uh, of sun-baked mud bricks, with the fortress's only gate being on the eastern wall facing the road along the Arava Valley. 
So at the front of the gate, and this is really important, is a carefully, uh, carefully dressed limestone slab, and it measures about 26 by 22 inches, and it is written in Latin text, and it is a rectangle with these ears on the left, and they're just these triangles off to the side, both the left and right. Um... Now, of the nine lines of text found on the slab, two and a half lines were intentionally obliterated. They were scratched out. Like, you can see the scratch marks and everything. They, like, this guy sucks. We're removing him. It is early. <laughs> it's early, like, shutting down of people. Um, but what remains is an, an inscription that is dedicated to Emperor Diocletian and his three co-regents and commemorates the construction of the gateway of the fortress under the supervision of the governor, Priscus. Um, and the inscription on the slab reads, For perpetual peace, Diocletian Augustus and Maximian Augustus and Constantius and Maximianus, the most noble Caesars, erected the wing with the gate by care of Priscus, the governor of the province of Syria, Palestina. Now, on the left ear is inscribed vows for the 20-year jubilee, and on the right, uh, it, uh, right ear are inscribed vows for the 40-year jubilee, and these are the commemorations of the, uh, the, I don't know, actually. Are they jubilees for the fort, or are they jubilees for the emperor? I don't know. But, um, yeah, you can actually physically touch. Somebody wrote that, and you can go run your fingers along those inscriptions, and your hands were where this Roman person's hands were. Now, I'm not a fan of the Romans, um, but I am amazed at being able to pierce the wind, the, the pierce through time and touch something that predates me by almost 2000 years. Um, so after this, after the Roman and Byzantine periods and their decline, we move into the Arab period. Um, and in the middle ages, the region became important as a crossroads for Muslim pilgrims and route to the Muslim holy cities of Mecca and Medina. So as I said, this was the land bridge. So this was an important way for people from the West to come down and go to the Arabian Peninsula and go to Mecca and Medina. So the settlements of the early Arab pyramid period, I said this before, Ugh, I was doing this before and I had to reshoot it and I said the early Arab pyramid. So it's not that it's the early Arab period. Um, so about two and a half miles north of Elat in Wadi Tawahin is an industrial site uh, that was excavated from the Umayyad period of the 7th to the 8th centuries. The site consists of several round and rectangular one-room structures and many round diorite grinding mills and stone mills for crushing were found in and around these structures. On the floor, though, um, and especially near the mills, a white powder was found, which chemical analysis showed to contain minute quantities of gold, one gram per one ton of rock, indicating that the site was not a grain mill, but was an early factory for processing gold. So again, you're seeing, um, the dynamic foundations of the workings of 
mankind, basically. Uh, the processing of gold was something that goes way, way back. Uh, but here you can physically touch it. It's amazing. It's fascinating. And here is one that goes back, what? Goes back a thousand years to the Umayyad period. Um, and that's not all, though. So at in Everona, which is also located just a few kilometers north of Alad, um, the remains of a farmstead were excavated from the early Arab period of the 7th to the 9th centuries. Um, so to irrigate this farm, water was collected by means of a very sophisticated man-made system. They did this by digging a deep well into the aquifer at the foot of the mountains. And from this, they dug a series of shafts with connecting tunnels. So the water flowed through the tunnels by gravitation and then along an open ditch to the cultivated fields. The water system at N and Verona was explored and found to be over one kilometer in length, um, of which 600 meters are a subterranean tunnel wide and deep enough for a man to walk through. This is amazing. This is, this is just the amount of effort and expertise that went into this is just phenomenal. Um, the fields of the farm at Enenvrona had enclosure walls and dams and were prepared with considerable attention to detail, as well as a high degree of engineering, ingenuity, and capability. And at the site, three dwellings were excavated, with one of them consisting of two rooms, which is weird because most dwellings are usually one large room. Um, it's assumed that this was a viable farm, which probably also provided services to the garrison to the caravans passing through the Arava or the section of the Great Rift Valley between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqba and the Red Sea. So this is, again, a thousand years ago, this, uh, this was a, there was a cultivated farm in the middle of what we would see now as nowhere, but it wasn't nowhere. It was a constantly traveled area, constantly inhabited area. Um, so what led to the decline of this area where a lot present day a lot is well it's the ottomans <laughs> so sorry so eventually a lot's importance as a regional hub gradually declined particularly after the ottoman turks built a new port at nearby akaba up until 1949 a lot was little more than a small Turkish police station called Um Rash Rash. And I'm assuming that it was there probably just for travelers because as it said, um, the, uh, it, it was most likely consistently used at least as a caravan route, uh, that would move goods and pilgrims, um, between the East and the Mediterranean, but as far as having any type of established settlement that uh, went into decline. So that's it. That's pretty much the history of Elat. Um, and, and I hope you liked it. I hope you enjoyed it. All right, that's it. Um, hey, listen, if you like this video, hit the like button, the subscribe button, and the notification bell. If you want to take us with you to the gym, to for a walk in the car, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitch, Stitcher, TuneIn, 
<laughs> and Spotify. It's the two STs at the end that make it different. So, but I got through it. Um, also, this uh, this video is brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel uh, Modern Hebrew Flashcards. The best resource, educational resource for learning Hebrew or um, keeping up with your Hebrew. And it's available on Amazon for Kindle. Uh, for Kindle Unlimited, it is free. And if you'd like to, if you don't have Kindle Unlimited, it's $9.99. Um, we have two out right now and they are Aleph Bet in print and script. That's all one. You learn both the print and the script Aleph Bet from this set. We have numbers in Hebrew and our newest one coming out in the next two weeks is body and clothing. I have that out for review right now. And uh, we also have our children's book, Who is a Jew, coming out. And uh, it, it, it's amazing. It's fun. I'm going over the illustrations. Um, my, uh, my illustrator, Donna, she is amazing. And I can't wait to bring it to you. Um, but and yeah, so that's it. All right. Um, thanks a lot. Todorba, the hitrot ve yalla bye. Shabbat Shalom